BC deals with the brand new COVID-19 variant. We all have concerns about this new strain uh, because we don't know enough about it. Why frontline workers are worried. A UBC grad sentenced in Saudi Arabia. This is a lot for somebody who just asked for the basic human rights. Why the punishment for Lujain Al-Hathloul is getting international attention. And a lost guitar reappears as a Christmas gift. Thank you very, very, very much. The tragedy that separated a child from the instrument and what brought it back. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. So we begin tonight with the latest on that confirmed case of the new and more infectious COVID-19 variant in BC. Richard Zussman shows us why health experts say we should all be concerned and the activities you might want to avoid. It's been worrying health officials around the world. Now the variant for COVID-19 is here in BC. With the rising numbers in uh, certain parts of the UK, the concern is that this strain is contributing to higher rates of transmission. This is what we do know. The variant has been spreading for months in the United Kingdom. A person arrived in British Columbia from London in Vancouver on December 15th. They have been isolating on Vancouver Island and developed symptoms for the variant in quarantine. We do everything we can to limit the possibility of this variant strain becoming present in our community at high levels, and we may be able to get through this successfully. There's a lot we don't know including whether there were any exposures to the virus on the originating flight or how the person got from Vancouver to the island. Scientists are also trying to better understand how the variant spreads differently. And so does that mean that grocery stores are more dangerous or does it mean that if you are present with someone at a gathering, it's more dangerous? It's a little bit of both. In response to questions about the unknowns, the BC Ministry of Health sent this statement. It reads in part, While everything's being done to prevent the spread to other people in the community, we do expect to see more cases of this variant in BC in the coming weeks, just as other jurisdictions are seeing. That's why it's more important than ever for British Columbians to stay local, avoid all non-essential travel, and use our layers of protection. It was spreading in the UK for months, and simultaneously, um, there's really quite a high amount of travel still between countries and between provinces. Um, I think it would be more surprising if it didn't happen to show up in BC. The good news for health officials is the COVID-19 vaccine still works against the variant, but we could need more. If the variant is more transmissible, that, that will mean that we will need to vaccinate more people to reach that herd immunity threshold. Experts advising that with mass distribution of the vaccine still months away, the only way to knock down the variant could be more restrictive health measures. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And there is growing concern about the potential impact this new variant will have on our frontline workers. The president of the BC Nurses Union says the new variant is bringing anxiety to the already strained healthcare system. Christine Sorensen says nurses are understaffed and overworked as it is, and an increase in cases could bring even more challenges. Well, nurses have been challenged through this whole pandemic, uh, both physically and emotionally, uh, to be able to meet the demands of not only the COVID pandemic, but the surgical renewal uh, and this, this increasing second wave of people who are being admitted to a hospital with COVID into our ICU. Uh, so, you know, certainly another new variation of this virus uh, adds to that challenge. Sorensen says healthcare workers are bracing for an influx in COVID-19 patients in January, 
following the holiday season. Keith Baldry joins us with more on the virus. No update today from provincial health officials. Keith, mm -hmm. we will learn the totals for the last few days tomorrow. But what can you tell us about the trends we've been seeing of late? Yeah, this has been the biggest gap in reporting since the pandemic began. Five days worth of numbers tomorrow. We've been averaging almost 550 cases a day, so we could have 2,700. Having said that, probably not a lot of testing over the holiday weekend, such as Christmas Day, so it may not be quite that high. But preceding the last weekend, the numbers were starting to trend in a positive direction. Take a look at some of the indicators that tell us what we've been doing. First of all, our daily moving seven-day average of average daily cases are down more than 120 in just one week. Again, tracking now at 547 a day. Our average daily deaths are down four in one week. It had been a high, an average of 18, now down to 14. Our positivity rate remains about 6.2%. It's hovered around 57 to 6.8% for the past month, a little higher than I think public health officials are comfortable with. But those are some of the expectations for tomorrow. The other thing to keep an eye on, Sophie, is what the number is going to be on Thursday, Friday, and next week, because that will reflect what happened on uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. If people did gather in big numbers, we're going to have more COVID numbers. And hopefully the number is going to be lower. If it is lower, it means people were obeying the rules. If it's higher than 550, it means people were not obeying the rules. So that's another big day to keep an eye on. Let's hope it's lower. All right. Thanks, Keith. Long way to go, of course. And rapid response teams are helping contain outbreaks at two more privately operated senior living facilities on the Lower Mainland. Fraser Health confirms seven people at the Rideau Retirement Residence in Burnaby have tested positive for the virus. The five residents and two employees are in self-isolation in their own homes. Meanwhile, two staff members at Brookside Lodge, a long-term care home in Surrey, are also in self-isolation with confirmed cases. Both facilities are operated by Siena Senior Living, a company with 11 seniors residences in B.C., and 37 in Ontario. There is some good news, though. The outbreak at Agassiz Seniors Community has now been declared over. We'll take you back to the UK for a moment and the impact the mutated COVID-19 strain is having on hospitals and emergency services there. Global's Redmond Shannon has more on the pressure that's building and the latest countries to register a case of the UK variant. When scientists said the new UK variant of the virus may be more infectious, Swiss authorities imposed a 10-day quarantine on skiers who arrived from the UK. Reports that 200 of them escaped quarantine caused understandable outrage in these hyper-judgmental days of COVID. The reality is that we don't have any numbers so far and most of the people just uh, followed the, the rules and used the official procedure to go back to England or they stayed here or they have finished their quarantine already. Even if it was just a few skiers, the story is raising questions as to why any British tourists were going to Switzerland at all, when international travel was being discouraged and when infection rates here were so high. The London Ambulance Service said that Boxing Day was one of its busiest days ever. On Monday, new daily infections in the UK passed 40,000 for the first time, although that figure includes data from the three-day Christmas weekend. More than half of infections in London are now thought to be from the new variant. Just as it did with China, the World Health Organization is asking for the UK not to be made a pariah by other nations. Only if countries are looking and testing effectively will you be able to pick up variants and adjust strategies to cope. We must ensure that countries are not punished for transparently sharing new scientific findings. 
But South Korea is extending its travel ban from the UK after it joined the list of countries to have found their first cases of the new variant. And Japan has now banned all non-residents from travelling to the country until at least the end of January. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. Meantime, American company Novavax has announced the start of phase three human trials of its COVID-19 vaccine. The company says it will enroll up to 30,000 volunteers in the U.S. and Mexico who are 18 and older. Two-thirds will receive two doses of the, of the vaccine, 21 days apart, and the rest will receive a placebo. Canada has signed a supply agreement with Novavax. And Novavax is the fifth company to launch phase three trials of a COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S. as that country hits another grim milestone. Over the weekend, it surpassed 19 million cases of the virus. That number is expected to rise after many people ignored warnings to stay home for the holidays. This morning, holiday travel is expected to trigger an even deadlier surge in the new year. As we get into the next few weeks, it might actually get worse. That sobering warning as the number of full ICUs in the U.S. doubled since October. And COVID-19 has now killed one in every 1,000 Americans. Health officials fear the end of 2020 will be the beginning of a historic new peak in the pandemic. California, now the U.S. epicenter, bracing for a COVID catastrophe. In Los Angeles County, where a person has been dying from the virus every 10 minutes, hospitals are in crisis. Huntington Memorial now preparing to prioritize those most likely to survive. Would you say that you're just weeks away from rationing care? We might be days away from that. People that are returning from the Christmas holiday are going to start feeling ill in the next few days. Overflow tents now set up outside the hospital, but medical staff fear even that won't be enough to handle a second holiday surge. It really is the opposite of what our training is, is to try to triage patients and say this one is likely to survive, this one is not. Across the county, supplies of oxygen and other desperately needed resources are running low. Doctors now urging the public to bring back oxygen tanks no longer in use. With just three days until the end of the year, nearly two million people nationwide have received the vaccine. Health officials admitting the warp speed rollout is off to a slow start. The idea that we're going to get to 20 million vaccinations by the end of the year, that's probably unrealistic. Dr. Hussein Sadrazadeh in Boston appears to be the first to have a severe reaction to the Moderna vaccine. He was forced to self-administer his own EpiPen. People need to get vaccinated. I really would like to uh, Moderna and also Pfizer to uh, investigate this more. Doctors still confident that vaccines are the only way out of this pandemic. A champion for women's rights fights for her freedom in Saudi Arabia. The former UBC grad has just been sentenced in her native country, but she has people all over the world on her side who say she never should have been charged. That's up. Surprising new developments in a weekend crash that sent an innocent family to hospital. Coming up on the news hour. And the story of a couple of healthcare heroes facing a heart-wrenching dilemma at what should be a joyous time for them. Coming up later. Some breaking news first, though. Homicide investigators are appealing for information about a fatal shooting in Surrey last night. Emergency responders were called around 1030 to the area of 137A Street and 90th Avenue, where they found a man inside his vehicle suffering from gunshot wounds. He was taken to hospital, but later died of his injuries. 
The integrated homicide investigation team has identified the victim as 19-year-old Harman Singh Desi. IHIT says he was known to police and the shooting appears to be targeted. Anyone with dash cam video of the area is urged to secure the footage and contact police immediately. Also, IHIT is confirming tonight that a burned vehicle found in a rural area of Pitt Meadows overnight may be connected to the Surrey murder. The car wreck was found along the Ford Road detour or 176th Street at around 2 in the morning. Now, Ottawa and the United Nations are calling the sentencing of a UBC graduate in Saudi Arabia deeply troubling and unjust. Catherine Urquhart has more on the court's decision to give Lujain Al-Hathulu or Hathlul nearly six years in jail and why many say the punishment doesn't fit the crime. 31-year-old Lujain Al-Hathlul lived in Canada for five years, graduating from UBC. On Monday, a Saudi court handed the well-known women's rights activist a jail sentence of five years, eight months. I'm really angry as, as anyone else who know Lujain or who believe in human rights. Al-Hathlul had openly called for women to have the right to drive before it was finally allowed just two years ago. Imprisoned in Saudi Arabia since 2018, Friends say she has endured torture and sexual assault. Now the jail sentence from the kingdom's anti-terrorism court. Her crimes? Agitating for change, pursuing a foreign agenda, and using the internet to harm public order. What they have done is to now state to the world that they consider women's rights activism to be an act of terrorism. Global Affairs Canada called the sentence deeply troubling, saying we understand that early release is possible and advocate for it. True to our democratic values and principles, Canada will always stand with human rights activists and defenders around the world. While Al-Hathlul is not a Canadian citizen, friends believe the Canadian government should have done more to help. I think it's very important that uh, countries like Canada, um, like the United States and other countries should ask um, to immediately and unconditionally uh, free Lujain. UBC stated, Al-Hathlul is an exemplar of UBC's commitment to free speech, equality, empowerment and education. UBC has written again to Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs to press for Ms. Al-Hathlul's release and to offer UBC's assistance. With time served, Lujain Al-Hathlul could be released as early as the end of March 2021. The UBC graduate has 30 days to appeal the sentence. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A man has pleaded guilty to dangerous driving in a bizarre crash on Highway 97 in Prince George last summer. 40-year-old Brandon James Peters was behind the wheel of this red car when it deliberately crashed into a pickup and pushed it off the highway into a curb. A woman inside the truck suffered minor injuries. Peters was given a six-month conditional sentence, 18 months probation, and a one-year driving ban for the June collision, which police say stemmed from a dispute between parties known to each each other. And new details are emerging about a devastating high-speed crash under investigation by BC's police watchdog. An innocent family of five injured when a car slammed into their SUV. Ramina Dea has a surprising development about the driver involved and some good news about the injured family. 
The IIO tells us the driver of the Dodge Charger was a woman in her 30s. She is not known to police. We still don't know where she was going and why she didn't stop. The vehicle the Charger hit was obliterated. A family of five inside, two parents and three children, all under the age of 13. The crash happened on the Highway 1 exit at Brunette Avenue around 9 Sunday morning. The IIO says an RCMP officer with the Portman Traffic Unit was conducting speed checks with a radar gun when the Mountie spotted the gray Charger traveling at a high rate of speed. Clearly the speed of the Charger uh, is an important part of this investigation. And while we have some preliminary information on that, I'm, I'm not able to give uh, any specific speed at this point. The IIO says the officer tried to stop the driver, but she kept going ultimately smashing into the victim's Kia Sorento, causing it to flip onto the roof. The Charger ended up in the ditch. All six people from both vehicles were injured. It was originally thought that two of them were in critical condition, and now we understand that their injuries, although serious, are not life-threatening and they are expected to recover. It will be up to the RCMP to decide whether charges against the driver of the Charger will be recommended. The IIO is investigating whether the actions of the officer were appropriate. Romina Dea, Global News. Coming up, a happy kid and his guitar. The heartwarming gift from his deceased father and how it arrived seven years later. Also ahead, ask and you shall receive one thrift store's generous offer to the homeless. On King George Boulevard in Surrey, we have a broken down vehicle on the shoulder, southbound south of Scott Road, and minor delays as you go to and from the Patella Bridge this, at this time. As a medically regulated business, Connect Hearing has strictly safe pro safety protocols. They are safe, open, and ready to discuss your hearing health. Book your free consultation at connecthearing.ca. In Global One at the Patella Bridge, I'm Amber Belzer. Vancouver Island business is giving back to the community in a compassionate attempt to deter crime. After too many break-ins, Kylie Stanton shows us how the Campbell River Thrift Store is offering free shopping for the homeless. We have no choice. Security tags on merchandise, cameras in every corner. We have been really, really... Um struggling with theft issues. But here at Qualitown, the usual tactics that tend to deter stealing haven't been successful. In recent months, the thrift store has seen a huge spike in break-ins. Their stock gutted as thieves, largely the community's homeless population, take what they need, leaving staff increasingly frustrated. Very disappointing, very disheartening. And so they've decided to take a different approach by opening the doors and inviting them in for Homeless Mondays. So we want to use this opportunity to show them love, to support, and also to understand uh, what their problems and the circumstances that they're passing through are and see how much we could possibly help them. Now, every second week from noon until two, anyone in need can come to Qualitown and shop for free. Shoes, clothing, jackets, really anything in the store in hopes of meeting the need and putting an end to the crimes. That works for us and works for them. This is only the second day the program has been up and running, and the feedback is nothing but positive. I think it's beautiful. It's great for the community. Lots of homeless people. They have an abundance of clothing, and uh, why not share the wealth? 
Blini says at this point, the cost to run the program isn't important. She hopes to establish it on an ongoing basis and perhaps inspire others to do the same. You know, a lot of people, they are quite excited for uh, what we are doing right now. So the world is out there already. Kylie Stanton, Global News. We got another good one for you now. A Richmond boy got a surprise delivery right before Christmas. A gift that was originally supposed to be from his father, who died seven years ago. Someone waited for just the right time to return this very special gift. Grace Key has more on the mysterious Steveston elf who knew the dad would have wanted it this way. Nine-year-old Charlie got a very special gift this Christmas from a mysterious Steveston elf. I figured it out by just putting my finger right there. His father, Paul, bought this guitar seven years ago for Charlie. But weeks before Christmas, Paul died from injuries resulting from a workplace accident. When it came time to wrap presents, I, I saw this guitar and I just couldn't couldn't give it to Charlie. It was too painful to... to know that this was something Paul had really wanted to give him and that I don't play guitar and I wouldn't be able to teach him. Erica sold the guitar in a Facebook auction and doesn't remember who bought it. Paul was an amateur musician and hoped one day to teach Charlie how to play. Charlie lives with autism. He was just two years old when his father died. My dad that died seven years ago. Um, um, what, uh, what? would give me this guitar to to teach me how to play the guitar. A few days before Christmas, someone wrapped the guitar and left it on the doorstep, addressed to Charlie. Not knowing what was inside, Erica put it under the tree. And then on Christmas Day, when Charlie opened it, Erica recognized it right away. They were kind of looking at me like, why are you crying? <laughs> like, and so uh, I read the, the note to them and then saw, looked over at Charlie and he was sitting on the couch already playing with the guitar. Dearest Charlie, we bought it for a purpose and kept it through the years waiting for you to grow up. It was always yours. Thank you very, very, very much. This makes, this make, this makes me feel very happy. Grace Key, Global News. Your dad is happy too, Charlie. Mm -hmm. Up ahead, Americans get some COVID relief. It is a light at the end of the tunnel. The stimulus that's going to be a lifeline for a lot of people and why Donald Trump gets some of the credit. Also, the push for rapid testing at Canada's busiest airport. Will it get more people flying again? afternoon commuters easing off quite nicely here at the Alex Fraser Bridge but still busy for the North Shore on the approach to the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. As a medically regulated business, Connect Hearing has strict safety protocols. They are safe, open and ready to discuss your hearing health. Book your free consultation at connecthearing.ca. Above the Alex Fraser Bridge, I'm Amber Belzer. 
Actress Lori Loughlin has been released from prison after serving time for her part in the college admissions scam. The Full House actress turned herself into authorities in late October, nearly three weeks earlier than required by the courts, and she spent two months in jail. Her husband, Massimo Giannulli, is still serving a five-month prison sentence. The couple pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit wire and mail fraud after admitting to paying bribes to get their two daughters into the University of Southern California. U.S. President Donald Trump is ending the anxious holiday weekend of waiting for millions of Americans finally signing the coronavirus relief bill into law. And this afternoon, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to increase the checks from $600 to $2,000. The stimulus package will provide small business loans, unemployment benefits and funds for states to distribute vaccine. With the stroke of a pen, President Trump avoiding a government shutdown unlocking hundreds of billions of dollars in coronavirus aid and ending an anxious holiday weekend of waiting for millions of Americans. Like Colorado restaurant owner Jules Lieb, who'll now get a second government loan. With Trump finally signing the bill last night, it is a light at the end of the tunnel. The past few months have been well, quite honestly, hellish. The bipartisan bill provides nearly $300 billion for small businesses, sends billions more to states for vaccine distribution, and extends two unemployment programs that expired Saturday. To threaten all of that while he's playing golf in his resort in Florida is uh, really playing, as I said, Russian roulette with American lives. The president spending much of the last several days on the golf course and on Twitter attacking the November election results but also repeatedly calling for stimulus payments to be increased from $600 to $2,000. Money Pennsylvania grandmother Nicole Akers told me she desperately needs. $600 doesn't even pay my rent. It's been a huge struggle. So $600 is not going to get me very far. Those direct payments could come as early as the end of this week. One week after Ontario Premier Doug Ford threatened to go ahead with coronavirus tests at Pearson Airport, even if he didn't get federal help, there's still no sign of any change. Now, one airline union says the time has come for action. Global's Sean O'Shea reports. At Canada's busiest airport, it's been a week since Ontario's Premier declared this. Our borders are like a sieve, like a spaghetti drainer. No, they aren't getting checked. Premier Doug Ford claimed that cases of COVID-19 are not getting detected because incoming passengers are not tested when they arrive. Stop the leak. It doesn't matter if there's 10 people getting through. That's 10 too many that are going to be out in the community spreading, spreading COVID. Now, one airline union says the time for rapid testing is overdue. Rapid testing should be rolled out at every international airport across the country. Sunwing pilot and union president Barrett Arman points to Calgary International Airport, which brought in testing almost two months ago. Instead of a 14-day quarantine, the isolation period in Calgary can be as little as two days, although travelers must remain in the province for two weeks. It's huge. The, the industry could actually resume, which I believe is what the federal government wanted. The airline industry believes testing would make travelers more confident about taking a trip, but that's something governments have discouraged during lockdowns. People are still traveling, and as long as people travel, there is a need for rapid testing. The union wants Ford to follow through on a promise to test. A provincial government spokesperson told Global News it's urging the federal government to urgently partner on testing, or else the Ontario government is prepared to act on its own. If they, they want to help us, well, we'll, do, we'll be doing ride checks on the side of the road as people exit because we're not putting people at risk here at Ontario. Sean O'Shea, Global News, Toronto.
In Health Matters tonight, researchers from the University of Florida have summarized the latest data on how COVID-19 affects children. First and foremost, children can get COVID-19, and as they get older, their risk of more severe illness increases, although newborns and children with underlying health conditions are also at higher risk. The risk of death in children is far lower than adults, but some children have died from the virus. More than 1,000 children in North America infected with COVID-19 have developed multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which requires hospitalization and special treatment. Well, throughout the pandemic, healthcare workers have been front and center in the battle against COVID-19, often sacrificing their own health to do so. Global's Karen Lieberman has one story of selfless sacrifice and great reward for a healthcare couple who found out at the start of the pandemic they were about to be parents. Working in the emergency department during the COVID-19 pandemic is challenging for all healthcare staff. There was a huge amount of uncertainty. You never saw emergency patients, you saw all these possible COVID-19 patients. When the COVID cases did come in, it was all hands on deck. For Michelle and Michael, as a couple working the front line at Mississauga Hospital, it's been especially difficult. Being somebody who's married to somebody in the field, um, who knows what he's going through. Um, and it was a little bit, it was hard for both of us at the time. And about to become even more so. Oh my gosh, like out of all the times in the, the, the year. It was like, oh my Lord. Michelle found out she was pregnant, expecting the couple's first child. There was a lot of pregnant women who were far along in their pregnancy that were leaving, many physicians, many nurses. So for me to make that decision, do I stay or do I go, was huge. Official guidance from public health officials varies about whether pregnant healthcare workers should be in the presence of patients during the pandemic. For Michelle, these were COVID positive patients, and this is unchartered territory. We didn't get in this job to walk away from this. Um, we, we got into this field to help those. Her husband, an emergency attendant, though concerned, supported her decision to stay the course. As healthcare workers, we did have to go on. It's our job. We signed up for this, and we're here to help other people. And nine months later, when she came out and I saw her, daddy cried. Baby Charlie Helen Byrne joined the Frontline family. Hi. She truly is the perfect baby. And you know, people always ask me, like my husband's asked me, Michelle, what do you want for Christmas? I'd be like, I have everything that I need right here with her. The perfect gift after making a huge personal sacrifice. Just the most amazing person I've ever met in my entire life. And in the, the last three weeks, she's the best mom I've ever seen. This is just like absolutely yeah. how it's supposed to be. Karen Lieberman, Global News. So sweet. All right, still ahead, solving a mystery that spans decades. The people putting in insulation in the crawl space found these books. Written by a little girl, how social media helped track down the writer, who's all grown up now. And in sports, D is for dominant. The key to the Seattle Seahawks' success heading into the playoffs. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. 
First responders on the North Shore are speaking out as they keep seeing people unprepared for the backcountry this winter. Members of North Vancouver District Fire and Rescue responded to a call on the BCMC trail this morning. An experienced hiker with proper footwear and gear ended up slipping and cutting his head. Firefighters believe his injury could have been worse if he hadn't been as prepared as he was. Too many others spotted going up the trail are clearly not as prepared as they should be. While we were here waiting for him to be brought down, we noticed a, a, a lot of people going up wearing Nike running shoes and, you know, big puffy coats and completely inappropriately dressed for what they're heading out to. Um, the recommendation for being here is that you're having at least a minimum of hiking boots with spikes and poles are a really good idea too because the trail is slippery. Once you get up to the upper quarter of uh, the BCMC trail, it's winter. It's full on winter, there's snow everywhere, it's slippery, it's dangerous, and there's a lot of people that are going up still unprepared. Little adds, there can be avalanche conditions at the top three quarter mark of the trail and everyone has to be prepared for such extreme conditions. Shaking my head, as they say on social media. All right, uh, let's check in with Yvonne right now. And uh, not really winter conditions down here at sea level for the rest of us. No, it started off gray this morning, and then we actually managed to see a few breaks out there. There was a beautiful uh, sunset this evening, and this was captured by Dickens in North Vancouver. And we've got dry conditions that will continue towards the evening. Another stunning shot of the sunset this evening, and this one taken by Warning Green Lake. Overnight tonight, it is going to cool off. We're down to the freezing mark. We've got some fog. That'll be in towards the morning hours. We do have dry conditions throughout much of the day. But there is an increase in cloud cover and temperatures tomorrow climbing up to four is a daytime high. And there is a change on the way as we get in towards the evening. It's all courtesy of this system along the northern half of the province that will start to bring rain along the north coast and the central coast as early as the morning hours. Very windy conditions ranging between 40 and up to 60 kilometers per hour. And then as we get in towards the evening, the precipitation is going to move in. But a heads up overnight and in towards our Wednesday morning along the south coast, Metro Vancouver, higher elevations. We're looking at the potential for some wet snowfall and then changing back over to rain. If you're traveling along the mountain passes, also seeing that snow developing, it'll be tomorrow night, five and up to 10 centimeters for the Sea to Sky, the Connector, the Coquihalla and the Allison Pass could see up to five centimeters and lesser amounts, but still accumulating snowfall for both the Rogers and Kootenai Pass. And the rain that is going to move in, we'll see upwards of 50 millimeters for most areas along the south coast as we get in towards our Wednesday. So the northern half of the province, it'll be wet and windy. Coastal areas will see those winds ramping up 40 and up to 60 kilometers per hour. Fair bit of cloud cover, but dry across the central interior. Southern interior, it'll be dry, morning fog, and then the snow is going to push in towards the evening and heavy at times. Do check in with drivebc.ca for the latest road conditions. In the morning, along the northern tip of Vancouver Island, the rain is going to pick up. Central half, will see it by the afternoon, and then Metro Vancouver towards the evening. A heads up for a Wednesday, we are looking at the potential for some wet flurries or wet snow, and so far into New Year's Day, it's going to be a soggy one with periods of rain and windy conditions. Tonight's central winders weather window is a beautiful shot of the sunset this evening from Grouse Mountain. Guys, very nice up there. Thank wow. you, Yvonne. Is it ever. All right, Squire's here with a look ahead to sports. Squire, what have you got? Well, you know, whenever the Seahawks have struggled this year, Pete Carroll always said, don't worry, things are getting better. Um, you know, somebody said, you know, I've, I've been so optimistic. When have I not been optimistic? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. It's the amazing story of uh, 
Well, how the Seahawks defense basically shape-shifted. Not the same D today as it was then. Also, the amazing story of how a little girl's lost notebooks were reunited with her decades later. Time for Squire now. It's happening. All right. We'll we'll start with the Seahawks. The uh, story of Seattle and the story of how the West was won. It really is a tale of two teams this season. They started 5-0 thanks to Russell Wilson going MVP and the offense outscoring all the defense's mistakes. But in the second half of the season, it's been quite the opposite. Now the defense is the tip of Seattle's spear, and it was the reason they beat the Rams yesterday Seattle's fifth straight game of allowing 17 points or less. Gets it. And short. Seattle's defense makes a play. Really, the mentality is it, it, give, us, give us a blade of grass and we'll defend it. But early in the season, the Seahawks' defense couldn't defend entire fields of grass, real or artificial. In their first eight games, they were 6-2. and two but they allowed an average of 30 points per game, which shows you how good the offense had to be. However, in the last seven games, the defense has allowed only 15 points per game. Obviously, they're twice as good now. This is a really obvious, it's a dramatic shift, you know, and, and it is statistically to go seven weeks of, of really, really good football. Um, you know, that's, that's a good turnaround. But actually, if you do look back at the Seahawks' first half, there were signs that this turnaround was possible. The defense did step up to save some games, even though they weren't playing all that well overall. Um, you know I mean? We got a lot of areas we can improve in, and we know that. Um, but this is the best ball we played all year, and we know that. Uh, I think that's the fun part about it. Everybody knows their role. Everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to do. And I mean, it's fun when you can fly around and have fun with these guys. And with the playoffs coming soon, having a hot defense is a lot more desirable than a hot offense. Defense wins championships. We know that going down the stretch, it's going to be some tough, tough battles. It's going to playoff time is around the corner, and uh, defense always wins championships. But we don't know how far this defense can go towards the ultimate championship, but it can celebrate a divisional championship. I don't want to be too happy because I don't want people to say, you know, he's dramatic or... He hasn't been there before. You damn right I haven't been there before. So, damn it, it feels good. It feels great. And well-deserved. Seahawks could still finish first overall in the NFC if they win their final game against San Francisco and both Green Bay and New Orleans lose. Not likely, but it's possible. Uh, rules that kept junior hockey teams from having its 19- and 20-year-olds practice with their younger teammates have been changed. Now players 21 and under can practice under, of course, COVID-19 safety protocols. And this policy will stay until January 8th when everything will be reevaluated, which is a welcome relief to the BC Hockey League. Really appreciate what happened there, and it wasn't just them. Our, our our ministry, the sport ministry, was lobbying. Via Sport was lobbying. BC Hockey was lobbying. But at the end of the day, the decision was the provincial health offices, and we thank them. The other thing that people should remember is those 19 and 20 year olds are our leaders, and they're the ones that are keeping everybody in line, especially 
with our COVID-19 safety plan. They're the ones that are making sure everybody is, is doing what they're supposed to do. And I believe that they've had a tremendous impact on the fact that we've only had two isolated cases since September, and both of them were untransmittable to anybody in the community. This gives you hope to have a season, Chris? Yeah, the way we're looking at it, Jay, is January 8th is a big day for us because that's when a decision gets made on whether the restrictions that are in place will be lifted that would allow us to play. If they don't get lifted, and, and we understand that if the PHO sees that as, as not the right time, then we will live with it and we'll move on with them to the right time. And what we're hoping is that that right time comes in, in time for us to save a season. All right, after burning out the light on the scoreboard against an undermanned Germany, Canada had a tougher game against a very defensive Slovakia at the World Juniors yesterday. They won. Canada is 2-0. Tomorrow, they'll face another team that knows how to play defense, Switzerland. Uh, Swiss will bring a lot of adversity tomorrow. They will play a similar type game. Then the, the, the Slovak, they will collapse the medal. They will defend it with a lot of pride. They, uh, they, 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 they want to beat us, so they, they will give it all. And that will be, for us, a good challenge to keep learning and how to play against those kind of team who wants to tie up the medal and play with a, with a style of play where they, 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 they will block shot and they will be five in the slot. And we need to, uh, to learn to play against that style of play. I wonder, how big must Christine Sinclair's trophy case be? She has to have like a laneway house to fit in all the trophies and awards. Today she was named the Canadian Press Female Athlete of the Year in a year where she became soccer's all-time international goal-scoring leader, 185. She's 37, and she's still going. Uh, also, uh, we talked last week about Henrik Lundqvist, Washington Capitals goalie, uh, stop playing temporarily because of a heart issue. We find out today he's going to need open heart surgery to replace a valve. Wow. Hopefully. Still still no plans to retire, though. That's the amazing no, thing. No, he, he hopes he can come back. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Jada Rant now for a look ahead to Global News at 11. JD? Thank you, Sophie. We are following Metro Vancouver's latest murder. IHIT says a 19-year-old was found fatally shot in a vehicle in Surrey late last night. And police now confirmed to Global TV that a burned vehicle found in rural Pitt Meadows early this morning is connected to the shooting. And remember that giant jade boulder that was stolen from in front of a Cash Creek tourist shop earlier this month? Well, it's now been found. Details on those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11. Sounds good. Thanks, Jay. And when we come back, a secret journal hidden from her little brother back in the 1980s finds its way back to the author. That's next. A Toronto man has unearthed a B.C. woman's top-secret treasure, one that dates back to her childhood in the 1980s. The finder is heeding the warning from the little girl who lost it decades ago and who, as Paul Johnson reports, is now all grown up and living in Vancouver. The week after Christmas can be a little bit of an of a anticlimax. No doubt. 
So Vancouver's Alison Jenkins was quite delighted when her social media blew up in the last couple of days. And I thought it was some kind of scam. Fondue, let's go. Jenkins is a longtime Vancouver musician and actress who's been on the West Coast for so long now, she seldom thinks back to her roots back east. But something back there still had a trace of her past. They were obviously written by a... Um, young girl. Nick Guns grew up in this house in the Toronto neighborhood of Etobicoke. He's also a historian, so he was quite intrigued when his parents gave him two old notebooks they found in the crawl space. And he was somebody who lived in the house I grew up in. He didn't read them beyond locating the author's name, partially out of his historian's respect for privacy, but also because of the stern warning on the cover. This book is written by uh, a, quote, sometimes fierce spy, unquote, and I wouldn't want to cross. Wanting to track down this fierce spy, he tweeted and hoped for the best. One thing led to another, and Jenkins was able to confirm that she was, in fact, the preteen writer who intentionally hid her secret diaries in the crawl space of the house they lived in at the time. I have a feeling I was probably hiding them from my younger brother and then just forgot about them. Kept safe from the prying paws of her kid brother. These time capsules of her former self are now en route to Vancouver. Nick, thank you so much. Uh, it means so much to me that you not only found the diaries, but were respectful enough not to read them. Paul Johnson, Global News. <laughs> That is an amazing story and so cool that uh, they were returned to Allison. I don't know if I'd want to read my old <laughs> childhood diary. You still have it? I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe my mom does. Maybe they'll come back to you 30, 40 years oh, down the road. I sure hope not. <laughs> for everyone's sake. All right, final word on the weather, Yvonne. It's dry, but we do have some fog overnight. And for Tuesday, rain's going to move in Tuesday and a heads up. Overnight into Wednesday, we could see some wet snow for higher elevations. And then soggy as we look ahead towards our Thursday, Friday, too. All right, thank you. Thank you, and thank you for watching, everyone. Hope you had a great Christmas break. Boxing Day stat, whatever you're celebrating. We'll be here all week. Talk to you later. Have a good night, all.